A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, August 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hundreds of jobs could be at risk now that the controversial clean coal portion of a Mississippi power plant has been shuttered. Any positions we have within our company and just trying to do the best we can for them. Hear a successful weight loss story from our State of Obesity series, how one woman got down over 100 pounds. A safety expert gives advice on avoiding the dangers of reckless driving around school buses. And a conversation on health care in Mississippi communities as health centers seek to meet medical needs. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Changes at the Kemper County Energy Facility are forcing the neighboring coal mine to put some employees out of work. 75 Mississippi coal miners will soon lose their jobs. Liberty Fuel Company, the group that provides lignite coal to Kemper County Energy Facility, says the layoffs are because of uncertainty surrounding continued gasification work at the power plant. Matt Jones is president of Liberty Fuels. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware more about the coal mine. Liberty Fuels Company is the operator of the coal mine in Kemper County, which supplies lignite to Mississippi Power's integrated gasification combined cycle power plant. Because of the uncertainty of the gasification process at that plant, on August 4th, we gave notice to 75 of our then 145 employees that they would be laid off in 60 days. Does this cover all positions within the coal mine? Yes, it, it covers um, it covered some salaried staff positions and production and maintenance employees both. As of right now, what are the workers doing in the coal mine? Many of them are just planning for the end of the 60-day notice period. We have tried our best to make sure we can do everything for them to help transition smoothly into into whatever new jobs they may find. We are trying to make available any positions we have within our company and just trying to do the best we can for them. The majority of these folks are local to either Kemper County or a directly surrounding county. They have all played a significant role in building this mine. It's a world-class coal mine. 
very thankful for what they've done for our company, for this community. And right now, we're just trying to make sure we can do everything we can to help them transition into the new chapter of their life. We are continuing to support the power plant and some of the the duties we had up there, and we're continuing to make sure that our our mine stays in compliance with, with all of our permits. Matt Jones is the president of Liberty Fuels Company. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Craig Hitt is executive director for the Kemper County Economic Development Authority. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware how the layoffs will affect the county's economy. It'll certainly have an impact on uh, not only Kemper County, but this region with the 75 positions that uh, have been laid off. And, you know, eventually what we're being told at this point, that there will be some additional layoffs uh, over the next couple of years as the mining operation uh, completes its restoration of the areas that have been uh, affected by the mining. Talk to me a little bit about what exactly is going on at this coal mine. It's a lignite coal that is being mined or was being mined to feed into a gasifier to generate electricity that was owned by Mississippi Power. And a few weeks ago, Mississippi Power announced that they were suspending their operation of gasification so there's no longer a need for the lignite to be mined. In fact, uh, from what we understand, the lignite that has been mined will have to be put back in the ground and all of that area reclaimed before the mine can be officially closed. What other employment opportunities do these workers have in Kemper County? Well, we have uh, another new company that's coming into the county that uh, will have a few available spots. They're looking to hire 15 to 20 individuals over the next couple of months. We're working with another company now that we hope to locate here that uh, indicate that they would hire 25 to 30 uh, new employees. Uh, And then, of course, uh, this region has uh, a number of opportunities scattered across it that could possibly absorb uh, some of these jobs. But uh, it's certainly a a blow to uh, residents of Kemper County that had employment there as well as, as I said earlier, this entire region. So when the plant was first opened, was it expected to bring in a lot of jobs? The total project, including the electrical plant, which, as I said, is owned by Mississippi Power, and the mining operation, which is owned by uh, Liberty Fuels, was looking to employ total employment would be somewhere in the 500 personnel range when the thing was fully operational. Of course, it never got to that point, but yes, we were anticipating having 150 to 200 employees at the mine and in the neighborhood of 250 to 300 at the the power plant itself. What has the community reaction been? Essentially, the opposite is happening. Everyone is uh, troubled, uh, obviously. The layoff by Liberty Fuels is a reflection of the decision that was made with the electrical plant. It really wasn't, you know, something that they chose to do, but they had uh, didn't have any choice once they were notified that the lignite would no longer be used. But it has certainly been a uh, downturn uh, for our local economy, uh, both here in Kemper as well as surrounding counties. What's next for these workers? 
we hope that uh, we can continue to work with uh, additional potential companies that will come into not only Kemper County but this region that would be looking to hire uh, individuals with experience with heavy equipment and uh, maintenance and uh, you know, those type of jobs that were available there through Liberty Fuels. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, there's been a substantial layoff through Mississippi Power with individuals who were working there, as well as a good number of individuals who were working with contractors that were on site down there. This is uh, this has been a big uh, overall effect for uh, for the region, not only with uh, any of the two major. Uh, employers being Liberty Fuels and Mississippi Power, but also for uh, these additional contractors that uh, had uh, on-site uh, abilities to continue to, to work and maintain uh, and work the individuals that were uh, employed by them. Craig Hitt is the Executive Director for Kemper County Economic Development Authority. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, ma'am. Mississippi Power has suspended the gasification portion of the plant. A decision whether to make that suspension permanent is due in October, according to the company. Coming up, in it to lose it, a Mississippi woman's decision to beat the odds and lose the weight. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On the next In Legal Terms. My guest will be Professor Kathy Janice from the Mississippi School of Law. Professor Janice teaches law school classes on water law, agricultural law, and fish and game regulation, among others. She's also been a research analyst for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Along with Professor Richard Gershon, they'll take your fish and game questions. Join me, Liz Gill, for In Legal Terms, today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Heaven Nunley weighs more than 100 pounds less than her top weight of 311 pounds. Her success story is part of our new series, State of Obesity. Nunley had recently graduated from college. She was back living at home, looking for jobs, and passing the time by eating. She eventually decided to have weight loss surgery to help gain control of her increasing weight problem. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware about the moment that tipped the scales. Literally, I sit at home every day in front of my computer eating and applying for jobs. That's all I did all day. It really just hit me. I was in Walmart. I never forget it. I was in Walmart with my mom, and she was like, we need to buy a new scale. And she was like, just step on it just to see how much you weigh. I was like, yeah. I'm like 270, 280. That's where I've been. I got on and said 311, and I had never been 300 pounds in my life. So that's when I just knew, like, yeah, this is out of control. You need to do something. Seeing the scale, it says 311. What do you do after that? I really got committed to working out, doing better for myself. Like, I literally got on Pinterest and found just little workouts I could do at home. I started running in my community. I started, um, even though I was living at home, my mom and she typically cooked. I made sure that I cooked something for me. I didn't use that as an excuse saying, well, you know, I have to eat what she cooks. I made it my business to cook what I needed to eat. And eventually um, I moved out um, with my now fiance. Um, We moved in together and I had control over it then. I, you know, it wasn't an excuse anymore. If, 
it was bad and I ate it, it was because I cooked it. And did you start to see results after that, changing your diet and just exercising? A little bit. And, um, you know, along with that, that's when I decided I was going to have um, my surgery because um, I had tr- I had tried everything over the years, Weight Watchers, just doing keto, um, anything anything that you can think of I tried it and I knew that if I just really wanted the results that I needed that I had to do something drastic so at that time I knew that state jobs had started um covering them with the insurance so that's what I did I applied for only state jobs and I ended up getting one and when I as soon as I started I went to my seminar to um, start my process for my weight loss surgery. And, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about it, thinking that, you know, once you get the surgery, you don't have to do anything different when you have to do everything different. You have to change literally everything about your thinking, everything about how you think about food, what you think about exercise, what you think about everything. So I knew that up front from having close people who had had the surgery. So I was just trying to prepare myself prior to getting it to make those changes just so, to make sure I would be successful. After the surgery, what were those first couple of weeks like? You hear horror stories. Like I was just prepared to be in the worst pain of my life. But actually I wasn't. Like it was uncomfortable, of course. I mean the rerouting your insides. But I mean, discomfort was minimal. I had my surgery at six o'clock that morning, six o'clock that afternoon. I was up walking. I went home three days later. And right after that, I was going outside walking. I started going to the gym two weeks after surgery. I started lifting weights a month after surgery. So my recovery, it was seamless. It was pain-free, really. Did you go through any emotional changes, seeing your body go through those changes and having to have a different lifestyle? It just amazed me how fast the weight really started to fall off. And like in those first six months, they say those that's your honeymoon period. And it really is because I lost my 100 pounds in the first six months. And so it, it was more amazing than anything. And I think how I prepared, I was preparing myself for it. So it wasn't any real emotional change changes for me because I was ready for it. How did your family deal with this? Were there any conflicts of interest with the culture of your family? Nobody wanted me to do it. Nobody at all. Not my mom, not my dad, not my fiance. No, no one wanted me to do it. They were all like, everybody would say, you don't, you didn't look big enough to do it. Or, you know, you can do it on your own and stuff like that. And I took it into consideration, but at the same time, I didn't do this for anybody else. I did it for me. And after I did it, they're like, I'm glad you did it. How have you been able to maintain your weight loss? I keep my diet. I keep my strict diet and um, I work out four to five days a week. It's not that you can stop once you get to your goal weight. You have to continue doing what you did to get there in order to maintain. Evan Nunley, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Coming up, safety tips for students, car drivers, and bus drivers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio.
This is Mississippi Edition. As Mississippi students head back to school, drivers around the state are reminded to watch out for school buses. Each morning and afternoon, the streets will once again be filled with some families' most precious cargo, and drivers are urged to pay close attention and follow laws regarding school buses. Parents can also review bus stop safety with their kids. The National Safety Council recommends children wait away from the roadway and board only when the bus has come to a complete stop, walking where the bus driver can see them. Becky Turpin is Director of Home and Injury Prevention with the NSC. She tells us what parents need to share with kids. I think one of the most important things that parents need to know around school bus time is is having the conversation about their kids on how to safely navigate that on and off uh, transfer time. So talking to their kids about waiting uh, on the curb, on the sidewalk, far away from the bus, making sure the bus has come to a complete stop before they approach the bus or before they stand up from their seat to get off of the bus. And one of the most important pieces is um, helping their children understand how to cross in front of the bus, making sure they're walking far enough in front where they can make eye contact with that bus driver and wait for that bus driver to signal for them when it's safe to cross. I've seen so many instances of cars pulling around school buses. What is the rule if you're a driver either behind a bus or coming towards a bus? Absolutely. If there are yellow or red lights flashing, absolutely no passing. You're right. This is so important for us to remind drivers. And I would say for drivers, if you don't know, then don't pass. Wait. A lot of times a bus driver, if they're just waiting and uh, passing some time, they'll signal you to go. But if you're uncertain if you should pass, then absolutely not. There are small children um, who can be unpredictable, who might you know, be in the vicinity and might not be uh, as predictable or as crossing when you might think they were. So just to take caution and be the responsible one in that situation. And I think, too, that people who are approaching the school bus don't realize that they have to stop as well because a child is crossing the street there. Yes, they may or may not be crossing the street, and you don't know that. And even, um, you know, even if you're in your own neighborhood and you think you know where those kids live, that's not the point. The law says that if that bus is stopped and those lights are flashing, that it is your responsibility to stop. So a parent also needs to talk to their child about what they should or shouldn't do. And I, I assume that's more than just getting on the bus or getting off the bus. How can a child be safe on the bus itself? Yeah, that's a good point. And while we would like to see more school buses um, or all school buses have seatbelts, the fact is that they don't yet. I think an easy way for parents to have that conversation with their kids is is to explain that they have the same expectations while a child is riding the school bus as they do when they're in their own car. So they remain seated. They aren't putting uh, body parts or objects out of windows. They are speaking in respectable voices that aren't distracting to the driver. They're keeping aisles clear of book bags for people to be able to pass safely. And they're waiting for the bus to stop completely before standing up to exit. Becky Turpin is Director of Home and Community Injury Prevention and Advocacy for the National Safety Council. Becky, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Safety experts also suggest drivers know and understand traffic laws and speed limits near a school bus and near schools. Oftentimes, the law changes during school hours. Coming up, community health centers around the state are discussing what's at stake for Mississippi patients. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Coming up this week on At Issue, the state of obesity. One out of every three people in Mississippi is obese. 
The problem is expected to get worse if trends continue. It's a very complex issue that has some individual responsibility, as well as that we're only healthy as some of the choices that we have available to us. Join host Wilson Stribling for At Issue, Mississippi's only statewide television news program, this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Across the state, Mississippians have access to health care at nearly 200 community health center sites. Community health centers, or CHCs, provide care to over 300,000 patients. Considering a changing federal health care system and budget cuts to the state health department, several stakeholders are talking about the role CHCs can play. As part of this week's National Community Health Centers celebration, the Mississippi Primary Health Care Association is leading this Champions for Health Tour. The membership organization is comprised of the state's 20 CHCs. The event includes tours of selected community health centers and open forum panel discussions. Ben Minifield is with the Primary Health Care Association. He tells us more. So the Champions for Health Tour is to connect not only lawmakers, but educators, community health leaders, but the community together to have an engaging dialogue about the efficacies of community health centers. Most people don't know that the first community health center in the nation was in Mound Bayou, Mississippi, in 1964. And it was born out of sheer need based upon civil rights issues, yes. But health rights issues were just as important. Uh, People in Mississippi have been suffering quite a bit because of the reality of poverty. And then health care is right there at the top of the list. And so this listening tour is a way for us to talk about not only how education and also uh, public policy align as it relates to treating people and making sure that population health is a priority, but it gives us an opportunity to build relationships. Now, is it also an opportunity to educate the public about the health centers in the state? Absolutely. So the Mississippi Primary Health Care Association actually represents the 20 community health centers that serve over 300,000 individuals. We want uh, patients, or better yet, the public to understand that you don't have to resort to just the hospital. Community health centers have a special place because no matter what your income is, community health centers are here to serve. Now, there is a process that is known as the sliding fee, which basically means based upon your income, you will be charged a certain fee, but you will not be denied. They're very comprehensive. So no matter if it's dental needs or mental health needs or, of course, your primary health needs or even something uh, as important as transportation, community health centers are there to actually serve the people. Now, what about preventative care? Because Community health centers is where you can go to keep from getting diabetes or or heart disease. This is true. So it's an educational facility as well. Well, well, if you notice, when we talk about the ancillary services, health education is at the top of the list. What can we do to best address an issue before it becomes an issue? Well, it's education. There are many new initiatives that the community health centers are seeking to launch, and that's why this Champions for Health tour is so important as well. Opioid addiction, for an example. Director Dowdy is going to be a part of this tour as well because we realize that the mental health issues, 
especially as it relates to medication management, is a huge priority. Community health centers have the capacity to best address those kinds of issues so that the patient is just not a patient. And so by working with law enforcement, we don't want to put people in jail. We want to treat the condition and get individuals off of these drugs. Same thing is the case with uh, hypertension. If we can help regulate an individual's uh, diet or nutrition, we can help to actually address the issue of hypertension or diabetes. When I was younger, there was a family physician. Yes. The doctor treated the babies yes. to the grandparents. Absolutely. Is that similar to what a community health center can do? That's exactly what community health centers can do. From infancy to the grandmother, the grandfather. And that's what we want people to understand. By taking more of a communal family approach, we can actually attack some of the other issues that plague the state of Mississippi. This week is National Health Centers Week. In Mississippi, we've chosen to do the Champions for Health Tour. Our next event is on Wednesday, August 16th, in Cleveland, Mississippi, at the Mississippi Grammy Museum. That's going to be from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock. And then on Thursday, August 17th, we'll be at Jones County Community College from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. as well. Again, we'll have special guests there. The lawmakers of the state of Mississippi are very important in this equation, not only because of the fact that they control the state budget, but it's important that they understand the power of community health centers and the fact that we need their continuous support. Uh, But of course, we'll also talk about how we can have or form collaborative partnerships with the Department of Education for after-school programs as well, youth mentoring, uh, as well as focusing on teaching uh, health literacy to young people as well. But the sharing of information is very, very powerful in this equation as well. Ben Minifield is a consultant to the Mississippi Healthcare Association. Ben, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.